what it takes to win a World Cup is not very different to you winning as a business in terms of everything that you do in your business processes. I had to do that and the lessons you learn are world class. Hello and welcome back or welcome to The Messy Middle. I'm your host, Andrew Horsfield. This podcast is designed for astute leaders like you seeking something deeper than a soundbite, a quick fix, or a simple five-step process. The purpose of this podcast is to have conversations with leaders and experts in their field who can help you elevate your impact as you advance your career, company, and life. You can find out more or listen to previous episodes at andrewhorsefield.com forward slash podcast. There's a lot of theory around how to build high-performing cultures and teams, but one woman who genuinely knows the practical side of high performance is Lisa Alexander, head coach of the Australian netball team from 2011 to 2020. Lisa coached 102 tests, winning 82 of them, leaving that role with an impressive 81% winning record. In addition to her on-field success, Lisa was also Coach of the Year in 2014, has been awarded the Australian Sports Medal and received a member of the Order of Australia Award in 2021, which all goes to show and demonstrate her contribution to people and performance in the Australian sports landscape has been pretty significant. In this episode, we discuss how Lisa builds a high-performance team and what systems and routines she uses to manage the demands of a head coaching role. Lisa also shares how she manages setback and struggle and overcome players' resistance and reluctance to change, along with much, much more. So get your pen and paper ready as we listen and learn from high-performance educator and coach, Lisa Alexander. Lisa, welcome to The Messy Middle. It's so good to be able to speak with you and uh, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So welcome. It's great to have you on as a guest. Thank you, Andrew. I'm really excited to be part of the show. It's had some fantastic guests already, so I'm very humbled. Thank you. So you were the first national coach you know, not to wear the gold dress, so I'm interested in your view about those who would say you can't coach at the level unless you've played at the level because I'm I'm sure you've got a view on that. Well, they're partly correct because you have to have, in my view, to coach at the very top, some kind of understanding of very elite level play. I think it does help. Um, I was good enough to be in the Australian squad of 20. Um, I made Victoria the Victorian state team for three years or three years in a row, which is actually harder to get into in many respects than the Australian team. My view at the time was I didn't get into the Australian team because I wasn't in the club, which was the Australian Institute of Sport um, as well. I had, you know, a husband or partner, a house, a, a child, and a life in Melbourne that just prevented that happening. And that was part of the problem with the Institute of Sports netball program. It eventually broke down because people just wouldn't take, you know, supplant their lives and go to the Institute of Sport anymore. And so that was a conundrum and it still is today because Canberra is an interesting place, as we all know, um, from a political, social point of view. 
Um, why is it there? Well, I don't know. How did you overcome that as a as a as a coach? What you would have been confronted with that that very challenge yourself as a as a leader. What was the issue you saw, and how did you look to overcome that as a coach? It it still annoys me today that I don't get asked to go on coaching selection panels. I've only ever been asked on one. I've been asked on plenty of netball ones, but I'm talking about out, outside sport uh, because I know what it takes to be the best and the best coach. And so I've only been on one, which is the the Brumbies head coach appointment when Dan McCalla was appointed. I was on that panel. I And it was because of Michael Thompson, who's a CEO that gets it, who's a leader that understands that you have to have diversity of, of opinions to get really good decisions. And, of course, corporate Australia are waking up now to that. That's why Justin Langer is on the board of Mineral Resources because the leader of that company understands Justin knows high performance. Well, what, what, are the, what are the skills that you think you would bring to, to that, Lisa, in the sense, what are they? High performance, high performance, simple. Yeah. What it takes to win a World Cup is not very different to you winning as a business in terms of everything that you do in your business processes. I, I had to do that on a, it's a smaller scale, I understand that, but the lessons you learn are world-class. And most companies, that's what they're doing. They're competing against Apple's competing against Samsung. Like, you know, there's not hundreds of countries they're competing against, but they want to be world-class in their area. I know what that, I can do that. That's what my whole work experience has been about. I'm not mm. just a teacher. I'm not just a coach. I'm not just a mother. I come from an aspirational small business working class family. You know, I'm thinking about you walking into the Evoca Netball Club or you're walking into the business who say, look, we're interested in engaging you to, to talk high performance. What, what are the things that you look for or, or want to notice or assess straight away to start to build this high performance, either to see where people are at or the levers that you need to pull or what, what are you walking in and looking for and assessing? I'm looking at the people and I got a very good lesson about this from my mentor, Bill Sweetenham, because he does do work in the global corporate world because he's more well-known overseas than his own country. He works for Mercedes-Benz, a number of oh, hotel chains around the world, and they understand that he has key observational skills. He can go into a business and tell them, Pretty, pretty quickly and sum up exactly how they're doing in their front of office. I'm judging Evoca Football Netball Club at the moment, re really well and truly. I spoke to one of the players that left their club last year and I asked, why did you leave? And that young boy who's in year six here in Evoca told me exactly why. And it wasn't a pretty story, to be fair. To me, that behaviour doesn't align with being a community club and looking after people. So that straight away is something that piques my interest. And Bill would always interview the tea lady at any business. This is back in the day when tea ladies were around mm -hmm. or tea people. He would always ask them what was going on in the business because they knew. 
your best employees are the ones in a small business that you know you're never going to get rid, you know, you'll pay them extra to keep them in your business because they are so profitable for you. Every business knows that. Big businesses don't, but they should have processes in place to tell them that story. And they should be checking not just through their data surveys from Survey Monkeys, but maybe doing podcasts like this, Andrew. Mm. You just get so much information when you talk to people. And leaders are often too far, while they're the decision makers often, they're, they're often too far away from that front line to actually know what a good decision is or what the client is telling or what the customer experience is or what the player experience is as a coach sometimes. Absolutely classic of sporting organisations at the moment in Australia, but someone like Peter Volandis is getting it right because he's he's leading the NRL. He might have some things that he's not doing right, but boy, is he doing some really good stuff. He's taking the AFL on at their own game and he's winning because he's listening to his participants, his fans. You know, it is messy. Leadership takes time. You have to have patience. But sometimes you need to act and he has acted in a way that I think has brought NRL to becoming the best sport to watch in Australia at the moment. Yeah. Tell me about the, this, this sense of listening and curiosity. Why, why is that a skill that leaders should start with? Um, because then they unlock really everything, you know, getting your context right, being curious about things, learning about the brain, learning about people. I'm interested going back, Lisa, because I think you mentioned a couple of things that listeners would be interested in. So, so one's about that curiosity. There's a pace of life now where, where we're constantly distracted. There's a busyness to just get stuff done, move things forward, deliver some results. How did you do that as a, or how do you do it now? Are there systems or structures or things that you have routines perhaps that allow you to stay curious, but also have that time to manage the complexity and diversity and to find and navigate all of those decisions and complexity that we have every day. Yeah, it's, it's complex. Um, I think might have been um, Cliff Mallet, Dr. Cliff Mallet at Queensland University who spoke about the complexity of coaching. He called it metacognition, which I love those science words, you know, metacognition. We're really what it's saying. Is there's a lot of stuff you've got to go through as a coach. One of them is, and I'll show you that, just for your benefit, Andrew, it's a gold journal. And that was given that was given to each diamond as they came into our program. I do it myself. That's the discipline. The discipline. The journal allows you to self it, it is a very concrete way of getting all the crap that's going on in here, in your mind, onto paper. So you're not really you're not giving your inner critic, the negative side of your brain, a chance to percolate. You get it all out on paper and that gets rid of that. And it's much cheaper than a psychiatrist. I take the time to do self-care at least every month, whether it's two out, whether it's a massage or something. You have to look after yourself to be a great leader. Otherwise, you just get caught up in bullshit all the time and you just drown in it. 
All of those actions are really important because they actually are looking after the person who's looking after lots of other people. And we were always taught in our bronze medallions that you must look after yourself. You can't save others if you're dead as well. It's exactly the same in mental health and coaching. If you don't look after yourself, how can you ask your players to do the same? And look, I, I think the the concepts that you're talking about around that self-care and journaling, uh, the, the benefit I see for people in my work is they start to recognise patterns of behaviour because they can go back to see, actually, this always trips me up or this thing always makes me feel anxious or this thing always makes me feel agitated and I pick a fight when I don't need to. And and so they're, they're more aware to be able to start to see those triggers and be able to then deal with them more effectively as opposed to get caught up in them. It's a, it's a really good process. And that's what I call high performance. Yeah. So that's what I can talk to boards about. I can bet my bottom dollar that a lot of board members are not doing it and they should be mm. because how can they make great decisions for their company, their employees, if they're not self-caring themselves? Mm. It's just, you know, that's why I was so fortunate to be on the best one of the best boards you can be on, which is the Victorian Institute of Sport. And I was the coaching expert or the high performance expert. Mm. And, you know, what, what a wonderful board it was to be a part of. Part of what you're talking about there's, you know, culture in terms of some of those intangible skills that we need to create that performing team or high performance environment. How do you, how do you cultivate a positive culture as a leader or a or a coach. That that was my little Bible. I'm showing Andrew staying at the top by Rick Charlesworth. He wrote it back in 2002 after the Hockey Roos repeated their gold medal success. Doing back-to-back is the ultimate. And I use that book to help create the next environment and challenges for Melbourne Phoenix, and we just went back and celebrated the 20 years reunion the other day. So we won back. We won. We, look, my husband and I looked at it and we said we should have actually won four in a row, but lots of things got in the way, and that's a time for another discussion and a book, actually. However, the back-to-back is one of the hardest things you can do, and it teaches us that, You can't do the same stuff all the time and get the same outcome, but consistency at the same time is important. So you've got to be consistent. And somebody told me a lovely saying, and they called it consistent excellence. And you can also have it in inclusion as well. You can have inclusivity excellence, cultural excellence. Sorry, but you have to do it all. You can't just find marginal gains all the time. Marginal gains, which my performance analyst who I still speak to today, who I worked with in the Diamonds, because he has such great philosophical understanding of the world because he studied it. He's a doc, He's a, got his doctorate. Um, you know, we often say, let's go for the low-hanging fruit. And that is you must do to begin with. You go for the low-hanging fruit, the stuff you know. It's like I hate that word, but the no-brainer, that you know you can fix and get early wins on the board so you keep your board happy. 
and then you start to work away at the things that really make a difference. And that is culture. That is the dynamics, the people side of the business. And that's where Carlton is just completely in, you know, really, I'm a Hawthorne supporter. I shouldn't even want to help them, but I just can't help it because it's just so bloody annoying because they're spending so much money that's going away from other sports and they're just failing because they can't even see their way out of their own backyard. What what are you seeing? Well, it's the people side. <laughs> it's very simple. I could go into that business tomorrow and, like I said, I'll, I'll sum it up very quickly because I'll ask the key people the key questions and I'll know it straight away because of my observational talents and my history of high performance. And I'll tell them whether they'll listen is another story. Mm. You know, and they're not people been working there for a long time. Now, for me, those people are responsible for the performance because they're allowing it to happen. So one of the key things that Carlton has to do immediately is they have to leave their baggage and their egos at the door and get some work done. And they have to communicate that to their family because they've got passionate people like Mark McClure and Brett Ratton. They're all passionate about Carlton. Mm. They want it to succeed, but nobody is leading in the way that needs to be done at the moment. It's a good case study, Lisa, in the sense when we talk about culture and leaving ego at the door, what are the practical things that you work on or look to address for that to actually be executed? I'll give you a book, another one. It's called Any Given Team by Ray McLean. That's basically a blueprint for it with his team he worked with and how he started his business. He himself is a wonderful case study of somebody who is not an elite coach. He's a teacher. He doesn't think he's that great, but he had a driving force behind him, which is his wife, Sally, God rest her soul, who said to him, Ray, come on, you know this stuff, get on with it. And he applied it and he now is a partner in a wonderful business of leading teams, which is all about what we're talking about. It's about Mm. leaders taking the step of self-discovery, but also doing things like, I was just going to show you my little book. This book here was, and you might be able to see, it's called The Pact. Mm -hmm. This was the book and it was from my media person at the time who's now working for Visit Victoria. She was at Netball Australia. She was awesome. She gave me this book because she was properly inducted into our um, trademark for our staff. Now, the, the diamonds were taken through the process with Ray McLean and we came up with Sisters in Arms and that's what Laura Geitz came up with. And to this day today, the diamonds are still very much inculcated with sisters. Now, it's slightly different. The new coach has put her stamp on it, but the good thing is the new coach has has used that legacy and history and built on it, which is what we all do and want to do. When we went on tour, our staff team, we were a family. And so on family night, the players would often go out together. Um, You know, they could go out with staff if they really wanted to, but it didn't happen very often. 
and the staff went out together as a, as a family, basically. So family night meant we went out together and enjoyed each other's company on tour. That made, that made tour actually bearable mm. for most of us who had children or husbands. And then if we visited the, the town of the, of the staff member, for example, our well-being person when we were in Perth, she would basically live with her family and just come into the things that she needed to for the team. So my leadership at that time was always mindful of family first. Did you have behaviours associated with that as well so that those words had a sense of, well, what are we signing up for and what are we committing to or what does team mean to us? Yes, that that's part of the process of getting to the trademark is what sort of behaviours we believe are acceptable and which ones are not. So that's what the players went through as well. So they had certain behaviours like being on time means five minutes early. Mm. I only had two rules, which I got from Wayne Bennett, but I agree with him. Being on time and working your backside off at training, so training intensely. You don't need many rules with teams if people yeah. understand that their role and and you talk about it and you make it explicit and you work on the dynamics of the team, then they will be they'll just go, well, that's a that's a challenge. Can we have a higher one now, please? Yeah. And in terms of maintaining that culture, just like maintaining a performing team, there's difficult conversations that you have to have as a leader with within that coaching or leadership landscape. How do you how do you have them? What does that sort of conversation look like for you in, in your leadership, Lisa? It means it's pretty much a conversation that shouldn't happen if you've done all your proactive work. And I say that with the greatest respect to everybody. Um, sometimes I had to tell kids off in class and I would often follow up afterwards with a conversation with that person so that our relationship would be fine. That sometimes happened on the court and with my staff. And that's called what I call um, if you've got the trust in the relationship and you've done the work on the relationship, then the relationship allows that little bit of, I don't know, grumpiness, I suppose. But if it's there all the time, if you're grumpy all the time, people are not going to play for you. So you have to follow it up. You make sure you have interesting social, not netball-related conversations with people. That means you know your players. So I always talk to my players about um, things like their university, their home life without being too personal and I had a well-being manager who was on top of all of these things as well. So whilst she mm. never, ever breached confidentiality either with myself or the players, she would always manage to get conversations going that would ask get the players to talk to me anyway if they were having a problem. Never would they be, would it be told by her. And that worked extremely well and helped us to, you know, win a title in 2014 and 2015 and to help us to deal with the loss in 2018 and 2019. 
where, you know, the team could have self-imploded easily after both of those losses, but it didn't. It went on to win Constellation Cups. So there's still strength in that. And I'm very proud of those results and the way that we went about them. Of course, we made lots of mistakes, but difficult conversations only needed to happen if there wasn't enough work done previously. So I would always schedule catch-ups, check-ins regularly with my key people. Mm. And you're talking, I mean, team in, in a really broad sense, which I really love. It's because... I think sometimes leaders think the performance is all about them and their decisions as opposed to the range of people around them. So I'm really interested. You've seen players and coaches up close performing under pressure. What yeah. What have you noticed about the, those who consistently rise to the occasion? Uh, they're the ones you just know can do it. Really, from the start, you knew it. You, you coached them when they were young and you allowed them to fail, you allowed them to learn, you allowed them to grow as people. And I think as a high-performance coach, you learn to assess, and this is what makes selection so important, you select on that basis of character and mindset because you know at the end of the day if two people are very similar it's the one that can do the we before me at critical times or do the individual special thing that is required by the rest of the team. There, that's how you win World Cups and stay number one in the world. You just, you know your people. And that's it. And you let them grow and you let them fail sometimes, but you always talk with them and you're always coaching them. That's why I said before, never never don't coach your best players because they'll undo you in the end. Yeah, I love that. And I was going to go back to it. Into Can you just explore that a little bit more? What, is that, what does that really mean for people listening? Because I think it sort of is makes sense, but I'm sure there's depth to it that you could provide. Yeah, you don't. For coaching, it's, I'll give you the coaching analogy because that's the easiest for me. Um, but it's also teachers as well. If I was ever going to be a principal at a school, I would never take my deputy principal for granted. That's for certain. I would never take my heads of department for granted. Yes, they can still keep learning. They can be better. They can be better teachers. They don't need to rest on their laurels. They need to become better at what they do, better teachers in the classroom, better managers of their staff, and also how they deal with parents. So you're really treating them like an elite athlete. That is, you need to give them regular feedback about how they're doing against agreed um, frameworks, not a performance review, an actual what I call regular catch-ups, regular feedback, which is what I did with my staff with the Diamonds. And my players, I mean, if they didn't get regular feedback, they'd be asking for it. So, you know, mm. uh, Sherelle McMahon told me the other day she has kept all my reports that I wrote to her when I coached her at Melbourne Phoenix. She still got them all and she reads them. So I, she had to write out her goals and then I would write my report after the game with her statistics and also my feedback. And I continued that practice all the way through and I will continue it with, you know, a, a new team that I, I coach in the future. 
And, and did you have a particular process or structure that you use for those feedback sessions? Yeah, they they weren't. Look, you've got to be smart about how you do it. We built our feedback system for the Diamonds into the athlete management system that was created by the AIS, and they created it with our input. So it was a fantastic technology that was built using real-life experience. So the people that developed the app listened to real-life experience and how it was used. So the players could just very easily for each test match put in their goals for that match and and went into the system and then I would just need to be on my computer and we will have done our, you know, video footage analysis already. I would have had the reports back from the um, performance analyst and then I could write their feedback to them. Plus having conversations. If there was follow-up required, and many of the athletes wanted a one-on-one with me after that as well, I'm more than happy to do it. Mm. I would never not give them they don't want fluffy feedback. They want to know really what I think. That's why I'm a world-class coach because I am prepared with love and care always because I always think of my players as daughters Is and I would do the same for boys. I'd be my sons, but it is given with the utmost love and care for that person, but it has to be honest feedback. Otherwise, people can't grow, and it's the same in business. If you've got a pain in the ass in your executive team, well, they need to know it. They need to be given feedback, but given feedback in the way that is caring, that is proactive, that is called a shit sandwich, a positive shit positive, that's how we grow as people. And that's the skill that I've learned as a teacher that I bring to coaching is that I can and will provide feedback. Yeah. I think it's such a good point, Lisa, for people to reflect on because, you know, in the work that I do in the elite space with sports people, one of the transitions they find the hardest in going back to call it normal life is just that lack of feedback because I go from that very clear, as you've described, you know, almost after each match, this progressive, how can I improve? What do I tweak? What was I, I thinking? How do I get better? Whether it be my diet or my preparation or my performance in the moment. And then we go back into a fairly non-performance related workplace. It might be a six monthly review or a 12 month review. And that lack of feedback is one of the things that um, as you know, is one of the, the great human motivators about improvement and achievement and ambition and a sense of progress that we're making. I'll give you another example, and it's in the arts because I was very lucky to finally get to watch the Australian Ballet practice with David McAllister as their artistic director. And watching him in action was just joyous. I can't tell you it still fills me with great emotion because I'm a, you know, I love the performing arts. I love ballet, dancing. I wish I could have been a ballet dancer, but, you know, didn't have the build. And watching him in action is just amazing. Go and watch someone like that in action. I, mm. I, I say that to CEOs. Go and watch a coach doing their coaching. Then you'll see real human interaction. You'll see what it means to be good at people skills, to get a team across the line. You know, individual coaching is just as important as well. But 
watching David in action, he was actually doing a lot of the actions that the ballet dancers were doing. Like he's in, still in great shape for I think he's 50-odd. Um, and the way that he used language in that, it, it wasn't stuff I necessarily understood, but I could see the coaching process going through and it was so beautiful to watch. And then to watch him working with his prima ballerinas in, and also his new rookies, his debutantes, was very joyous to watch. It were, they were all treated very evenly. It's a very Australian way. It's not necessarily how they would do it in Russia, I'm certain. But, you know, it's still the Australian ballet, wow, they are mm. world class. Yeah, it's a great suggestion. As I listen to you, I, I want to ask, if, if you had to group success into three buckets, say talent, attitude and work ethic, would you put a certain percentile on one or another or rate one more higher than another, talent, attitude, work ethic? Yeah, I'm often asked this question. It's very interesting. It's different at club level versus national level, okay? So at the very top, you have to have talent. You're not going to make it if you don't have it. So that's why Joyce Brown always said to me, you have to coach you have to coach the hard ones as well, Lisa, not just the easy ones, which is true. At the very mm-hmm. top level, you're going to have real assholes. excuse the French, because they just are. Um, what you try and do is get that talent working towards we before me because they understand that if they put their ego aside for a moment, they will unlock extra potential, which will end up you know, down the track, you'll be known as a premiership winner. So it's a very delicate balance. Um, yeah. Character, absolutely critical. You were not going to make it without it. So the people that carry on about, oh, they're really talented, but they're really, no. However, I do believe in human potential that you can teach people how to be better at that side of things. And then what was the other one? Uh, work ethic. Yeah, that's that's a bit similar. I think at the very, very top level, Australian level diamonds, you have to have all three, tick, tick, tick. You can probably get away with a little bit less um, work ethic to get to the top in a domestic competition, but you'll always get found out. So that's why I won't tolerate it when I'm coaching if I want to win. So character absolutely critically important at the domestic club level because you just you're just going to be pushing shit uphill it's too hard you haven't got a lot of time uh, if you've got time you can tolerate it that's why you have to have that beautiful balance with new players versus experienced players and that's what Hawthorne's going through at the moment I mean Sam's doing a magnificent job under absolute fire at the moment from so many sides. I can't believe it, but he's doing great because he has a framework, he's got his mission, he knows what he's trying to do and he's doing it consistently. He's staying focused and positive through the fire, which will hold him in good stead down the track. And, you know, his young ones sometimes trip up, Um, but they tend to like the other day, come back in the second half, which is really good signs, really good signs. 
And it, I mean, you just mentioned Sam Mitchell. It coaches, I mean, national head coaches, Australian head coaches in particular, you're just under the spotlight of public opinion constantly. So how do you or how how do you as a coach maintain your conviction and sense of self under that that constant pressure of criticism and, and public opinion, particularly in those times where, you know, the results aren't speaking for themselves and all of the th- criticism comes and the observations and insights and armchair experts? Well, that's why Sam can handle it because he's had an elite playing experience. So round about 90% of all national coaches have had elite playing experience, which includes myself. So even though I didn't, let's go back to that question at the start, even though I didn't play for Australia, I've still had elite playing experience. So I've got that instant respect that is needed. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um and he has that as well. And he's learnt many good lessons for dealing with the heat when he was a player. And he's watched, you know, Alistair go through that as well. He's learnt what to do and what not to do, which I, which I did as well. I learnt what to do and what not to do from Norma Plummer and Jill McIntosh and Joyce Brown. And I had to make my own way. So you have to create your persona, and I call it the fifth quarter. And it is vitally important that you prepare yourself for the fifth quarter, the press conference. Wayne Bennett sort of does it well, but he he doesn't try, but he just does his persona, which is grumpy. (laughs) Grumpy grumpy no matter what, and he won't mind me saying that. Um, Craig Bellamy has his way, which, you know, as as a Melbourne Storm fan, I guess I'm getting a little bit worried about the fact that he can't necessarily pinpoint what's going on at the moment. That's a concern. But the good thing is Craig's really honest. So he does honest the whole time, Mm. regardless. So it's that management of performance as a coach, and I tell all my coaches about this, you're performing still. You are a performance artist at match days as much as the players in your field. So whatever you're doing is going to be communicated to the world. And so that's why I took it very seriously as the Australian coach, like not swearing and not getting too demonstrative with umpires and all of that stuff that I call performance theatre. The the world-class coach, you that's what you have to practice and you have to have a way that you're going to do it and you have to get feedback from people who've walked in your shoes. Terrific. And the last question, how do you evaluate your success as a coach beyond just the win-loss metric? You might have alluded to this before around some of your reflections of your previous cohort of, of female players who you think are, are destined for higher things. But how, how do you evaluate that coaching success beyond the win-loss? Yeah, it's seeing the players that you coach from way, way back and some of them still correspond with me. So I guess that's nice that they didn't completely hate me. Um, for being a tough, hard ass in those days. Um, yeah, many of them still communicate with me, which is great uh, because I did go through a marriage breakup and that caused eruption in my life, which caused people not to communicate with me or for different sorts of reasons. Um, and so many of them still do that. I'm watching the coaches that I coach now, so Beck Bully coaching in Queensland, she's coaching now. And that's just a wonderful thing to see. 
Um, the players, you know, I'll give you another example. Liz Walton, I coached her in 2003 and two with the Melbourne Phoenix. She was studying medicine then. We used to talk all the time about making sure she was keeping up with her work. I'd talk with her parents about it. And I meet her last Sunday and she's an anaesthetist in the northern suburbs of Sydney with four children and mm. a happy, a ha- well, on you know, I think she has a happy life and she just, she brought her daughter, Abby, who's going to be one of Australia's greatest ever, probably intellectuals. And it's just, that's just, yeah, mind-blowingly great. And, you know, I said before about my sons and daughters, I've got stepchildren as well. Just seeing them grow up happy and healthy is pretty, pretty cool. That's a pretty good place to leave our conversation, I reckon, Lisa. Thank you so much for your insights and wisdom from a, a life of, uh, of dedicated to Australian sport. And as you've um, articulated um, very nicely beyond the sporting court or boundary as well. So um, thank you so much. It's been great to talk with you. Thanks, Andrew. Just a couple of things before we wrap up. If you've enjoyed this episode and think it'll be good company for your drive home, commute on the train, or even mental fuel during your daily workout, please subscribe by clicking on your preferred podcasting platform at andrewhorsefield.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to receive a monthly email from me with insider content, videos, white papers, and some recommended reading that will help you move your mental furniture around advancing people and performance, then sign up for more content that's been curated specifically for curious minds like yours at andrewhorsefield.com forward slash contact. Thanks for listening.